Good morning, Fairhaven. My name's Jeremy. I'm one of the pastors here. And this morning, I want to invite you to turn with me, if you want to follow along in your Bibles, to the book of Genesis chapter 6. Uh, we started this year working through the book of Genesis, and today we are in a story that my guess is quite familiar to most of us, if not all of us. It's a story today that I don't think you even needed to have grown up in or around the church to most likely be familiar with this story. It's a story we see painted on nurseries. It's a story we see at zoos. Because, like, it's a boat with these fuzzy little animals, right? Like, today we're going to look at the story of Noah and the ark. You've, you've likely seen it somewhere in some kid's place. You, you could actually drive down in Kentucky and see what some, uh, some people think is, is maybe a replica of the boat in this story. Uh, a handful of years ago, it was made into a major motion picture starring the gladiator, right? Russell Crowe. Uh, so it was, it was in a theater near you. Uh, this story of Noah and the ark. And so today, we're gonna dive into this story, but what we're gonna find what I hope you find is that there is so much going on in this story that today we're going to kind of intro Noah and the Ark. Today is kind of Noah and the Ark, the flood part one. And so I'm, I'm glad that you're here today because I think what we're going to find in this story is, is so incredibly real and relevant and meaningful to, to us today. And if you're here today, you really need to be here again next week. So the, the little trailer is, uh, you're here today, I'm glad you're here today. We're going to wrap this story of the flood next week. But what we want to do is we want to be honest with the story. And we want to ask good questions of the story and ask what is it that God is, is intending to teach us in this story. Because if we're honest, as we read this story, uh, this is one of those stories that I think sometimes uh, we become so familiar with something, we actually miss it. That familiarity can actually breed unfamiliarity. And this is a story that I think we just have a bunch of answers that we filled into some of the questions. I want to give you a pop quiz on the Noah and the Flood story. Just a couple questions. One, how many animals, how many of each kind of animal did Noah bring into the ark? How many of you answered two? Right? One pair. One male, one female. Wrong. You, I mean, you're, you're kind of right. Like, it does say in the story, bring a pair of every animal to one male, one female. But then what we find is in the beginning of Genesis chapter 7, it says, we'll bring one pair of every unclean animal and seven pair of every clean animal. So, I mean, two is kind of right. It does say that. But what Noah's actually told to bring on the ark is more. How many days were they on the ark? Uh, often the answer is 40, right? 40 days and 40 nights. <laughs> no, right? Like, it rained for 40 days and 40 nights. But as we read through the story, they were actually on the ark for much longer. Sometimes being familiar with a story actually could create an unfamiliarity that we miss the story because we assume we already know what it says. And then, with this story, if we're honest with ourselves in how we, how we read the story, for, for some of us, it, 
it causes us to ask some big questions about the story, right? Like, one of the story, one of the questions, uh, might not be a huge question, but like, what happened to the dinosaurs, right? Like, shoot, right? Was that today? Like, oh, we missed it, right? Like, is this the answer to the dinosaurs? Where do the dinosaurs fit in? And then it causes us to ask a whole bunch of other questions. Like, what about vegetation, right? Like, did he have a bunch of plants on the ark? Like, what's going on with that? But then if we're really honest with the story, it could cause us to step back and ask even some, some really big, profound questions. Like, if the flood story is a story of God being so angry at, upset with, disappointed by the world that he decided to do away with all of it. The, the big question then is, could my life ever become, could, could the choices I've made, could the decisions I've made, could the life I live, could God ever be so angry and so, so disappointed or disgusted or fed up with me that he could just be done with me? The story forces us to ask some big questions. So today, today I want to I want to look at this story, Noah and the ark and the flood, and I want to ask what is it what is it that God is trying to communicate to teach through the story? And in order to do this, in order to jump into the flood story, we first need to lay some groundwork. Uh, we first need to back up, right? Because the book of Genesis in so many ways almost becomes a commentary on itself. That we read something, and then even just a few chapters later, we find out that what we read earlier is actually being expanded upon. And in order to understand this, we first need to understand that. And so in order to understand the flood story, I first want us to go back to the very first words of the book of Genesis, something we looked at together, if you were here, somewhere around a month ago. And so the book of Genesis starts like this. It says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. Now, when we looked at this, this is my pop quiz to find out if you're paying attention, right? Like, uh, when we looked at this, we looked at a phrase in this passage. It's the phrase that gets translated as formless and empty. Anybody remember the Hebrew phrase? Tohu vavohu. Go ahead and say tohu vavohu just in case it comes up again sometime, right? Ah, it was really weird and jumbled, but we'll take it. So, tohu vavohu, it, it translates as formless and empty. That's not a bad translation of the word, but we also, or of the phrase, but we also talked about how the, the rabbis understood, like, it meant something. There was a word that they said it kind of represented, this formless and empty tohu vavohu. Anybody remember? Chaos. So essentially, they said that the story begins with tohu vavohu, a formless and empty chaos. I heard somebody describe this once as it's almost like you put nothing in a blender and turn it on. But that's like, it's just like this blended nothing. And they're like, uh-huh. Yeah. That's, so it's formless and empty. It's chaos. And we looked at, do you remember that the two things that were present in the chaos, in the tohu vavohu? We have darkness and we have water. Uh, the darkness over the surface of the deep and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And how through the Bible, darkness and water, 
become these kind of two themes that almost represent the world as opposite the way of God. Actually, to the point that at the end of our story, in the second to last chapter in our Bible, Revelation 21, John, one of Jesus' disciples, has this vision of the end time, of, of like this new Jerusalem, this holy city come down out of heaven. And John has a couple details he includes. He says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, where the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. Right? Why no sea? Well, if water represents chaos, in this final time, when the holy city comes down, when God once again lives among people, there will be no more chaos. It's done. It's gone. It's done away with. Just a few verses later, he says this, The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and the Lamb is its lamp. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. On no day will its gates ever be shut, for there will be no night there. When this holy city, when God is again living with people, there will be no chaos. The gates don't even need to shut, because chaos is done. So the beginning. In the beginning, uh, in the beginning, the earth was tohu vavohu, it was chaos, it was formless and empty. There were two things present. There's darkness and there's water. And did you notice where God was in the midst of it? If we put it back up, it says the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep and the spirit of God was hovering over the water. So where is God in the midst of the chaos? Where is God in the midst of the darkness? He's right there in it. He's right there. He's not somewhere else. He's not intimidated by it or afraid of it. He's, he's not, God is right there in the middle of it. And even at the beginning of the message today, I, I want to hold here for just a second. Because for some of us, for some of us, I think we need to know this. Because for some of us, the idea of darkness, the idea of chaos, it doesn't feel like this just kind of theoretical thing because for some of us, we feel it, right? That we look at the world around us and we see in so many ways the world around us feels like it's a world in chaos. That for some of us, it's not even necessarily something out there, but it's something in here. That as we look at our lives, as we look at the, the relationships we have, as we look at some of the decisions we've made and the things we've found ourselves tied up in, for some of us, that chaos feels personal. It feels like it's, it's part of our story. Uh, but the thing of the story is that God, God is not somewhere else. God has not turned his back. God is not, God is, God is not overpowered by, but God is right there in the midst of the chaos. He's right there. And then there's the thing we looked at of what God is doing. Do you remember what God is doing in the midst of this chaos? Well, what we find God doing is God is working to bring order to what was disordered and to bring life, to fill with life that which was empty or that which is dead. So God, present in the darkness, present in the chaos, working to bring order and working to bring life. And then what we find is God creates humanity, he creates Adam and Eve, and God initially he gives them a job description. And essentially what God does is he invites them to join him in the work that he's always been doing, to bring 
order into chaos and to bring life, to bring goodness into the world. But the reality is Adam and Eve have a choice. They have a choice that lies before them. Humanity from the beginning has had a choice. They can either partner with God in the work God's been doing to choose order, to bring order, to bring life, to follow the way of God, or they can turn their back on the way of God. They can do what looks right to them, and in doing so, they can make choices. They can live in a way that brings disorder, that brings destruction, that leads to death. Will they choose to bring order in life or to bring disorder and destruction and death? How will they live? We see the first humans, Adam and Eve. What do they decide to do? Instead of following the way of God, instead of partnering with God to bring order, to bring life, what do they do? They essentially, they turn their backs on the way of God. They do what is right in their eyes And what they do is they make decisions that end up bringing disorder, that bring destruction, that bring death. Right after Adam and Eve, we have these two baby boys are born, brothers, Cain and Abel. And the question, are they going to continue the way that mom and dad lived? Or are these children, are they finally, are they going to not make the mistakes of mom and dad? Are they going to bring order back into the world? Are they going to partner with God? What do we find happens? Cain, again, decides to do what's right in his eyes. They, he, like mom and dad, essentially, essentially they, they don't take responsibility for themselves, for their personal responsibility, their moral responsibility, their responsibility that what they do affects those around them. Cain chooses disorder. Cain chooses death. And he kills his brother Abel. Uh, so it's almost as if in the beginning, God enters the chaos. God brings order. God brings life. And from the very beginning, humanity has continued to turn their back on the way of God, on the way of order, on the way of life, and time and again has chosen chaos, has chosen destruction, has chosen death. And so the question then becomes, what happens? What happens when it's not just a couple people living this way? But what happens when everybody ends up living this way? where everybody is turning their backs on the way of God, where everybody is choosing to do what is right for themselves, where everybody is is shirking their responsibility for their own actions and for the way their actions impact those around them. What does the world look like when everybody is living this way? Uh, Genesis chapter 6, starting at verse 1. Uh, sorry, uh, starting at verse 9, I'm sorry. Uh, this is the account of Noah and his family. Noah was a righteous man, blameless among the people of his time, and he walked faithfully with God. Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight and was full of violence. God saw how corrupt the earth had become, for all the people on earth had corrupted their ways. Now there's a piece in that passage that to the original hearers of the story would have leapt off the page. It's that verse right in the middle. Uh, it's this one. It says, now the earth was corrupt in God's sight and the earth was full of what? Violence. The earth was full of violence. 
And this, to the original hearers, would have leapt off the page because it would have sounded like something in that job description that God had given Adam and Eve, that God had given humanity from the beginning, all the way back in Genesis 1, when God creates humanity, he called them to do this. He called us to do this. In Genesis 1, it says, God blessed them, Adam and Eve, and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. They were called from the very beginning to fill the earth. But to fill the earth with the goodness of God in partnering with God in bringing order in bringing life, they were supposed to fill the earth. And then we get to the story of Noah, and we read they have filled the earth, but what have they filled it with? Not the goodness and the, the life and the, the order that God had intended. Instead, they filled it with violence. Now, the, the rabbis tell a story about what the world looked like at this time. It's not in the Bible, but the rabbis would tell a story that they said uh, when the people during the time of Noah, by them filling the earth with violence, it's almost as if, it's almost as if everybody lived in a way that if you were to bring, if you were to bring uh, some produce to market, it's almost as if the, the world exists in such a way that every person who passed by would take from you uh, somewhere just less than like a penny. So it's not enough to necessarily get in trouble. It's not enough to necessarily prosecute or anything. But it's enough that by the end of the day, you had nothing left. But it's almost as if the, everybody that existed was only looking out for themselves. They were not looking out for one another. They were simply doing what was right for them, what was right in their eyes. But did you notice, though, in this passage, when God sees the corruption of the world, do you notice the thing that's, that's missing from the story? Because when we read the flood story, I think there's, there's some answers that we fill into the gaps, especially around the why. Why the flood? Why does God destroy everything that is? And I think there are some answers that we fill in. Uh, we could think that, well, God became so angry with how the earth was that God almost, like, smited, like, God, God destroyed everything out of his anger. Or that God was so disgusted that he decided just to do away with all of it. But what we find isn't that. The story doesn't tell us that God was so angry or God was so disgusted. Uh, if we read it again, notice... It says, now the earth was corrupt in God's sight and full of violence. God saw how corrupt the earth had become, for all the people of earth had corrupted their ways. It's almost as if God is seeing what's happening, and then God is going to respond. Because God has choices in front of him, doesn't he? For the, everybody's heart, the inclinations of everybody's heart is all, the, the earth is corrupted. God could, God could look at it and go, oh well. I'm just going to wash my hands of it and just let it, just let it be whatever it is, right? I'm just going to let it continue. A God could become so distraught, he just decides to turn his back and be done with it. God could lash out. Like, uh, there are a number of different parenting styles, right? Some of us are hearing, oh, like, that's kind of how it works at our house, right? Like, the, the chaos happens and we just let it slide. Or God, God has, God sees what's happening. God sees the corruption that has come onto the earth. 
God sees how humanity time and time again has turned their backs on the way of God, have chosen disorder, have chosen chaos, have chosen the way of death, and then God responds. And in this next passage, we're going to kind of read a large chunk of the flood story. And so we're going to, we're going to move through a, a, a bit of it until we get to uh, something in, verse, in chapter 7. So, so God said to Noah, I'm going to put an end to all people, for the earth is filled with violence because of them. I am surely going to destroy both them and the earth. So make yourself an ark of cypress wood. Make rooms in it and coat it with pitch inside and out. This is how you're to build it. The ark is to be 300 cubits long, 50 cubits wide, and 30 cubits high. Make a roof for it, leaving below the roof and opening one cubit high all around. Put a door in the side of the ark and make lower, middle, and upper decks. I'm going to bring floodwaters on the earth to destroy all life under the heavens. Every creature that has the breath of life in it, everything on earth will perish. But I will establish my covenant with you, and you will enter the ark. You and your sons and your wife and your sons' wives with you. You are to bring into the ark two of all living creatures, male and female, to keep them alive with you. Two of every kind of bird, of every kind of animal, and every kind of creature that moves along the ground will come to you to be kept alive. Right? The two, right? Uh, You are to take every kind of food that is to be eaten and store it away as food for you and for them. Noah did everything just as God had commanded him. The Lord then said to Noah, Go into the ark, you and your whole family, because I have found you righteous in this generation. Take with you seven pairs of every kind of clean animal, a male and its mate, and one pair of every kind of unclean animal, a male and its mate. And also seven pairs of every kind of bird, male and female, to keep their various kinds alive throughout the earth. Seven days from now, I will send rain on the earth for 40 days and 40 nights, and I will wipe from the face of the earth every living creature I have made. And Noah did all that the Lord had commanded him. Noah was 600 years old when the floodwaters came on the earth, and Noah and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives entered the ark to escape the waters of the flood. Pairs of clean and unclean animals, of birds, and of all creatures that move along the ground, male and female, came to Noah and entered the ark as God had commanded Noah. And after the seven days, the floodwaters came on the earth. And now pay attention to what happens next. What happens next is the description of how the flood happens. It says, In the 600th year of Noah's life, on the 17th day of the second month, on that day, all of the springs of the great deep burst forth, and the floodgates of the heavens were opened, and rain fell on the earth 40 days and 40 nights. Okay, the springs of the great deep burst forth, and the floodgates of the heavens were opened. Now, question for you. Is that how it works? Like, we've seen flooding, right? Doesn't the story almost sound backwards? Because we know how floods happen, right? Like, rain comes down from the sky, rain then collects on the ground, and then it starts to grow on the ground, right? It comes down, and then it comes up. But the way the story describes it, it says, the springs of the great deep burst forth, And the floodgates of the heavens were opened. So it almost feels like there's this active water coming up from the ground and an active water coming down from the sky, doesn't there? So what is going on in the story? Well, in order to understand what's happening here, 
Any guesses where we got to go? Back. We got to go back into the way the original, the original audience would have understood the way their world works. To understand the, the, the great springs of the deep bursting forth and the floodgates of the heavens opening, we need to go back to, again, Genesis chapter 1, when God is creating the world. Remember, God begins by filling, by, by separating, by bringing order into what was disordered. Day one, God separates the light from the darkness. On day two, we read God do this. It says, and God said, let there be a vault between the waters to separate water from water. So God made the vault and separated the water under the vault from the water above it. And it was so, God called the vault sky. Okay, let's hang here for a minute, right? This vault is called sky. What's under the vault? Water. What's above the vault? Water. Okay, let's step into the ancient world. Imagine you are somebody who's living in the ancient world, you go outside. Did anybody notice today is like one of those rare Michigan days where like it's not cloudy, right? Like, thank good. So if you were to go outside today, assuming the clouds haven't rolled in because Michigan, but you go outside and you look up at the sky, what color do you see? Blue. Blue, not a trick answer, right? Like not like the earlier ones are setting you up, but you, you look up and you see the sky's blue. Now, in the ancient world, if all that you see is what's in creation, is what's in the natural world, what else do you ever see that is a similar color that's blue? Water, right? Water is the color blue. You look up at the sky, you see the sky is blue. The only thing you know that looks that color is water. And then what happens from time to time? What falls down from the sky? Rain, which is water. Right? So it's, it's not hard to think that up there, there's essentially this vault, this dome, this shell, and what is above it? Water. The way they understood the world in Genesis chapter 1, uh, it's, there's actually a technical like scholarly term called a firmament, but the idea of a firmament is essentially like there's this dome, this vault, that is keeping the water below, below, and is keeping the water above, above, and we live in this vault, in this dome, in this firmament. The best kind of mental picture I have for it is it's almost as if we kind of live in a snow globe that is submerged underwater. Right? There's water below, there's water above, and we live in this thing that is then protected, God protecting us, God creating this space where we live kind of in between the waters. Does this make sense? Okay, so back to the story of Noah. The great springs of the deep burst open and the floodgates of the heavens are opened and we have water coming up and we have water coming down. It's almost as if in the story... It's almost as if God is kind of removing his protection in the firmament. Right? It's almost as if the thing that God separated in Genesis 1, God is now kind of removing, and now we have water coming up from the depths, and we have water coming down from the top, and now it's almost like it's returning to the way it was in Genesis 1. Does that make sense? 
Let me ask a question. If it rains for 40 days and 40 nights, what does it look like outside? Is the sun shining and it's bright and it's... What's it look like? It's dark, right? So we have darkness. What is, again, covering everything that exists? Water. Anybody remember a story where we had darkness and we had water? It's almost as if the flood story is, is as if everything is returning to the way it was in the original creation. It's almost as if God enters into the chaos, the tohu vavohu, with darkness and water. God enters into it and he provides order and he fills with life. From that moment, what humanity has done is they have, they have failed on their end of the partnership of joining God in that work. And instead, humanity has chosen to bring disorder, to bring chaos, to choose death. The entire thing almost feels like it's been sliding backwards until a point where it's almost as if God says, okay, if you've chosen chaos, if you've chosen disorder, fine. And we see the world again returning to chaos, to darkness, to water. Uh, do you remember the first story? Where was God present in the midst of the darkness and the water? The Spirit of God was hovering over the waters, right? Where is God in the story of the flood? Or maybe, maybe where is, are the people of God in the story of the flood? They are right there hovering or maybe floating on top of the waters. It's almost as if the entire world has fallen back into chaos. It's almost as if the flood story is almost like God's pressing restart on the story. Right? God is pressing restart. We're back to where we were. Anybody, anybody like me uh, grow up on the OG Nintendo? Anybody? Oh, yeah. So, like, if you grew up with this thing, you know there are two buttons on it, right? There's power and there's reset. And you know that reset button well because, like, this is a world – the Internet isn't invented for another decade, right? So, like, my kids' minds are blown that dad's old enough he lived without the Internet. But back with this machine, you would put the video game cartridge in, you would push it down, you'd close the door, you'd hit power. If you were really lucky, it worked. Right? Like, it doesn't work. This thing was terrible. But so what you end up doing is you hit power, and initially it might look like it was supposed to, but it's not long until, like, a part of the picture that's supposed to be over here is over here, and there's these lines that are moving through it, and everything's all messed up. And so what happens is you see this, like, what it was supposed to look like, but it doesn't. And so what you have to do is you have to hit reset and hope that the next time when it clicks back on, it looks the way it was supposed to look. It's almost as if the flood story, God, God hit power. God invited humanity to partner with him in the work he was doing. But instead, humanity continued to turn its back to choose chaos, to choose disorder, to choose death. And it's almost like in the flood story, God hits reset. And we end up back where we were when the whole story started. It's almost like God is restarting. God is inviting into something new. And, and in the story, I think we find a theme that happens through the Bible. That, that through the Bible, God is inviting his people. God is inviting us 
into a, a, a newness, into a restoration, into a renewal, into new life. And that through the Bible often, what we find is that in order to step into that something new, something else first has to end. And through the scriptures, often what we find is that there's this kind of death that then leads to a new life or an invitation into this new life. That if we even look back just a couple chapters ago to the story of Adam and Eve, right? Adam and Eve, God calls them to partner. Instead, they choose what's right in their eyes. You remember the thing we looked at when, when they ate the fruit they weren't to eat? Immediately their eyes are opened. They realize they are naked and they're filled with shame. And what does God do? God provides the skin of an animal to cover them, right? So the first death recorded in the Bible is not Cain killing Abel. The first death recorded in the Bible is God killing of some animals in order to give the skin to Adam and Eve to cover their shame, right? And then we get to the story of Noah and the ark, and we have everybody, the entire earth has been corrupted, and God, God in the flood story, essentially the old thing has come to an end so that something new can be birthed out of it. That a little while later we'll find the Israelite people slaves in Egypt, and God will set them free. God will invite them into this this new way of life, partnering with him as this people. And in order to be freed from Egypt, they're first going to have to kill a lamb and put its blood on their doorpost. That the way we see the story of Jesus is that Jesus, by his death, will be resurrected into this new life. And that by his death and resurrection, we then have the opportunity, we then have the invitation to say no to the old life, to say no to the chaos, to say no to the pieces of us that are still choosing chaos, and to allow him to birth something new in us. It's actually how the early church understood conversion. What does it mean to say yes to Jesus? They understood saying yes to Jesus is in a significant way kind of a a death of a piece of us that continues to say no, that continues to do what's right in our own eyes, and an invitation to allow God to breathe something new into us. Uh, Paul, uh, one of the early apostles, a church planter, Paul would say it like this in a letter to a church he wrote in Rome. He says, don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we all will also live with him. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has, no longer has mastery over him. The death he died, he died to sin once and for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. In the same way, Count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal bodies so that you obey its evil desires. Do not offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and offer every part of yourself to him as an instrument of righteousness. For sin shall no longer be your master because you are not under the law but under grace. 
See, they understood that to say yes to Jesus is to to almost put to death this old self, this old way, and inviting God to to breathe something new into us. They actually saw that in the image of baptism. If you've you've been here when we've done adult baptisms, either on the stage or at Camp Geneva, there's a sense of, of in baptism, like you take somebody and you place them underwater, right? It's almost symbolic of being buried And then the opportunity to then come back up out of the water into this new life. But the story of the flood, the story of the flood is, I think, this invitation to let some of us, some of us, some of us are here and we need that restart. Right? We need the opportunity, we need to invite God into pieces of our lives that are continuing to choose chaos, to choose disorder, that are choosing to do what's right in our eyes. And maybe for some of us, we need that opportunity for a a restart, for a renewal, for a a breath of life into, into those spaces of our lives. That for some of us, we need a flood so that something ends and God can breathe something new into it. Uh, For some of us, for some of us, it might be the relationship that it's been, it's been broken. It's, we recognize we've been a, a significant part of it. And we, we need, we might be here and we need a flood. We need to be done with the old so that God can start something new, this new spark inside of it. For some of us, it might be a, a, a work, an opportunity with an employer. For some of us, for some of us, we need a flood in the, the things that we tell ourselves are true of us. That we need to say no to those voices in our heads saying, we're not good enough. You're not valued enough. You're not loved. You are not enough. And we need to invite God to almost bring a flood into those ways of thinking so that we can then hear what God is whispering to us, what God has always been saying to us, that you are my child whom I love. So the, the question, the question I want to leave us with as we end kind of the first part of our flood story is that invitation God offered to humanity from the beginning, that we can choose order, We can choose to make decisions to live in a way that is bringing order, that is bringing life, that is bringing the goodness of God into the world. Or we can choose to live according to what is right with us, to bring disorder, to bring destruction. We have the choice before us every single day. The way we interact with our families the way you interact with your kids, I recognize in my life how often the way I respond, the way I might respond could bring chaos instead of order, right? We have the opportunity to respond, to bring chaos or to bring order, to bring life with your kids, with your spouse, with your families, with your, your coworkers, with whoever you encounter, with every decision you make. We have the decision to choose life, to choose death, to choose the way of God, to choose the way of ours, of the world, to choose order, to choose chaos. May we be people. May we be people who evaluate the decisions we make, the things that we say, the way that we live, and may we be people who are partnering with God to bring that kingdom of God here every moment, every day, in the way we live, pointing, using our lives to point to the one who 
who invited us into that new life in Jesus. Uh, Would you pray with me? Uh, God, for all of the ways uh, we continue to do what is right in our eyes, for all of the ways we continue uh, to build chaos into the world, God, may we know that you are not angry with us, that you are not disgusted by us, but that you always do invite because you want more for us. Uh, the invitation to step into a life as, as a child of yours, to follow in the footsteps of your Son in Jesus, who came here to live rightly, to show us how to live, and to call us to walk according to his path. God, for all of the ways, all of the ways, that we do otherwise. God, we lay them at your feet. God, we pray that, that you would send a flood to wash over them, that we might die to that old self so that you might start something new in us. And God, we pray that something new would continue to point ourselves and our families and everyone we meet to you. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.